introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome back. It has been a long hiatus for me, and I am very excited to be back, back at the mic, back doing what Quantum of History was originally supposed to be, which is the History Podcast. It's been about a year and a half I've been away. I've been insanely busy. Uh, I bet on myself, and I am paying dividends, and it's, it's it's been a rewarding experience, but I had to step away from the podcast just because, you know, I could do like the Fleming versus Films, those were fine, because that's just talking about opinions, it's really easy, but doing the actual quantum history with all the research and stuff, I just didn't have time to do it. I'm very excited to be back, though. Here's the plan going forward. This will be one of 12 episodes for the year. I'm going to do a new episode once a month, first Tuesday every month, they're going to get released. This one is going to be about Victor Bout, or Butt, I guess it's pronounced in uh, in Russian. But I don't want to go an entire, because you know my maturity level is is not even is non-existent. So if I have to go an entire episode saying Victor Butt, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to uh, to contain that. So it's we're gonna go Victor Bout, um, and he was the he was the Merchant of Death. He was the one that was traded for Brittany Griner. He's the one the Lord of War. Uh, it's Gave, inspired a Hollywood movie even. So this is a very fascinating story. I have some amazing guests, really good discussion. And I think you guys are really going to like this. I'm very excited to be back. I am going to be back here on a consistent basis. Like I said, this is the first of 12 episodes. There will be one a month, every month, on the first Tuesday of every month for the year. And then I'll sprinkle in some Fleming versus Films uh, and stuff like that in between. But there will definitely be 12 episodes this year. Uh, and I'm excited, and this one is a fantastic way to get back into the groove. Without further ado, let's get right into the episode about the Merchant of Death, Victor Bell. When I first heard about this story, I just screamed Bond, right? It just screamed. How many times have we seen arms dealers and bond you've got the living daylights you've got casino royale you've got tomorrow never dies and numerous other times where bond faces a villain that is dealing in the world of arms and that kind of deep culture and victor bout is the poster boy for what it is to be an arms dealer but his story goes deeper than that so 14 years after his arrest in thailand the world's most notorious arms dealer Nicknamed the Merchant of Death, is now back home in Russia, a free man. In a stunning prisoner swap, the United States traded Victor Bout for WNBA player Brittany Griner. Griner was arrested with hash oil in her luggage, charged with smuggling contraband into the country, and sentenced to nine years in prison. So why did the United States trade for Griner? Why was this man so important to Russia? And the answer to that is a true Bond villain plot that already inspired one Hollywood movie and surely could inspire another Bond villain. Victor Bout's origins remain vague. Most believe that he was born in 1967 in Dushanbe, the, the capital of Tajikistan. At the time, Tajikistan was in within the Iron Curtain. Dushanbe is surrounded by Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, and China. If you take a compass and you put the needle on Dushanbe and you spin it around, you would hit all those countries in the same measured radius. This proximity and familiarity with the region would prove to be invaluable in later years. Bout was gifted with languages, as he is thought to be fluent in English, French, Portuguese, Arabic, Russian, and Persian. Bout joined the Soviet Air Force and rose to the ranks. It's not confirmed, but it's almost certain that Bout was part of the Russian military intelligence organization GRU. 
Gru has not only their intelligence, but they're also their own special ops unit. Their standing in Russia are even more mysterious and dangerous than the KGB. Where he spent his time in the 1980s is, is debated, but it's, it's pretty much accepted by all investigations that Bao ended up in Angola during the late to mid-1980s. It was there he worked as an interpreter to cultivate USSR assets and ties in the African region. Angola speaks Portuguese, and with Bout's fluency in Portuguese, he had a fortuitous opportunity to cultivate important ties. Bout's timing was fortuitous for a number of reasons. Conflicts in Africa were growing, the USSR was collapsing, and blood diamond money was flowing in from Eastern African nations, and there was little to no government oversight. This is, I mean, these, these places are basically running chaos. Economists who visited the region commented just how little was known about the country's economy. Where there's chaos, there's opportunity. And in the early 1990s, the Soviet Union crumbled. Airfields were littered and abandoned, um, and they had cargo planes everywhere just sitting there rotting. They would, there was reports where you landed in an airport in the former USS countries, USSR countries, that you could see massive planes with flat tires and rotting, rotting on strips that were had grass growing in the landing fields. So uh, they basically just had a mass exodus and just left the planes where they were because... There was nothing more that the USS, it was collapsed. Just overnight, there was no, there was, it was no more. So these cargo ships were the perfect for Bout's needs. And by the time the USSR fell, Bout's ties and connections in Africa had grown, and he had clients that had money to spend and weapons that needed to be filled. Bout needed very little money to start his business because the abundance of cargo plans available. It wouldn't be like here, you have, imagine trying to start a, a, a buying planes and all that here. Uh, it wasn't like that at the end of the nineteen, at the start of the nineteen nineties, because all Bout would do was just lease these planes that were already uh, abandoned on the fields, and he would hire out of work mi- former military pilots and crew, and he paid them very well. He had the backing of what in Russia is called a krisha or a roof. A krisha is either a high-ranking government official or high-crime-ranking uh, syndicate boss who backs your capital endeavor. The world's intelligence communities all agree that it would have been impossible for Bout to pull off this business without Akrisha. They needed, there's no way he didn't do this without the Russian government knowing. There's, there's just no way. Um, and, you know, based on Putin's, um, you know, loyalty to him and his loyalty to Putin, it, it begs to guess, it begs to guess they, uh, they have long-standing ties together that probably go back all the way to, you know, this time in the USSR when it was falling. And as with most exploits that happened in a war-torn country of Africa, the growing arms trafficking underground remained out of the spotlight. Bout was able to work in relative obscurity. Bout expanded his empire across the globe from Rwanda, Congo, Angola, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, and many other countries. The reach and size of his arms empire remained unknown. There were points where they hadn't even had a picture of him until the 2000s. Um, he really lived his life shrouded in mystery, uh, but you know, it can't last forever. And the first time that his name came up in a world press was in 1995 when his ties in Afghanistan were published. Originally, Bout supplied the Afghan government in their fight against the Taliban. That was until one of his planes was taken by the Taliban and held its collateral. The plane was transporting 30 tons of AK-47 ammunition. Bout, being the shrewd businessman he is, met the challenge as an opportunity to introduce himself to the Taliban. Bout then switched sides and began arming the Taliban with weapons. And that's, you know, what I read from most of the reports about this guy is that he never picked a side. He didn't care. You were all a customer. I don't care about your ideology. I don't care about, um, 
you know, side, I'm not a freedom fighter. I'm not a guerrilla. I have no stance. I am here to simply make money. And if you have money and you need arms, uh, I will supply you. I don't care what, I don't care who wins, who dies. I am just a simple businessman. And in bout, it was rumored that he had to be instrumental in the trading of blood diamonds. There was a report that, um, he actually got paid on in diamonds on several occasions in Angola, a country where Bout had deep ties, he was said to have been paid numerous times in diamonds on several occasions for arms. The civil war in Angola is nearly 50 years old now and accounted for millions of lives lost. Angola has been having a super war. It, the, it rose again in the 1970s. It really became um, very deadly. And then by the 1980s and 90s, uh, as the money from these diamonds grew, now instead of just you know rudimentary war, now they're they're you know getting missiles and and high end explosives and high end, you know this 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 isn't just selling, it isn't like you go to West Virginia, and you buy a handgun and then you bring it over to uh, let's say a state like Maryland or, let's say Illinois, which has you know Chicago has very strict gun laws, and you go to the next state and you buy a couple handguns and you bring it over. That's not the scale that we're talking about with Bell. We're talking about anti-aircraft missiles this guy was selling. We're talking about high-end explosives. We're talking about high-end weapons. We're talking about, you know, 30 tons of ammunition, thousands and thousands of AKs. Not some rinky-dink, you know, smuggling operation across the border. This had to have the backing of the Russian government. There's, there's no way. And then in Gola, you know, you're talking about warlords that run the country. It's not like there's a, a big infrastructure that you're circumventing the laws that are in Angola. So very fascinating to see this grow. And it kind of, you know, we talk about this later on in the interviews, you know, who's doing anything wrong? You know, there's all sorts of weapons trades throughout the entire world. And as NATO um, goes, you know, these embargoes are only just suggestions. There's no teeth actually to them. And as Bout's empire grew, so did the tales of adventures. Numerous of Bout's deals are detailed in the 2007 biography, Merchant of Death, Guns, Planes, and the Man Who Makes War Possible by Douglas Farah and Stephen Braun. And uh, I was reading this, and in one of the occasions they talked about, that it, I, I read this, you know, this is just rumors and stuff, but Bout was meeting with Congolese warlord Jean-Pierre Bemba. And at the time, Bemba was rumored to be making $1 to $3 million a month. From the sale of blood diamonds. Bemba, ever the, ever the uh, stereotypical warlord, refused to travel anywhere in the countryside without generators, working toilets, amenities, and of course, beer. Bemba was traveling on the countryside to quill a problem in the countryside. Bemba was running low on beer, and Bout and Bemba took one of Bout's helicopters to fly to a neighboring village to stockpile enough beer and alcohol for the night. While in town, Bout began exploring the town with his video camera. Bout was so- socially awkward and acted like a tourist. There were reports that he just w- was a weird guy. He videotaped everything. All the ventures that he went on, everywhere he went, he, he brought his video recorder. And on this occasion, Bout recorded an area and took footage of a nearby hospital, which was illegal in the Congo. You, you can't videotape anything, especially hospitals in the Congo. Bout was arrested and quickly demanded that the police go find Bemba and release him at once. The local policeman found Bemba and told the, him of the white man that was filming hospitals. Bemba immediately ordered his release, and Bout, still infuriated, returned to Bemba to complete the transaction. And, uh, you know, he was, he didn't know who, who he had, but he, by the reaction of the, the, the warlord, they knew they needed to let him out immediately, and they did. Bout worked with the worst of humanity had to offer. There was reports that Bout actually hated most of the people that he dealt with. Uh, he couldn't stand them. He found them 
to be uh, horrible, worthless human beings, but they were customers. And, you know, I'm not trying to bite the hand that feeds me. I don't care. I know that I'm not dealing with, it's like that line in a, uh, quantum of solace, you know, maybe we should only deal with nice people. Like that's just not the world you're living in. And Bout was the same way. He, he knew that where his business was, was not upstanding people. It was notorious, terrible people. His anonymity though, in, in dealing in Africa and Afghanistan where the world didn't care, you know, most of these places, you, you know, when these things happen or when there's conflict, even to this day, there's plenty of conflict and, Sub-Saharan Africa and, and all across the world, but for the most part, you know the the West doesn't get involved until it becomes something of interest to them, and that was happened on September 11th. Bout's obscurity would be no more. Now, after um, <clears throat> after September 11th, Bout continued to supply the Taliban with weapons while also flying shipments for the United States government into Iraq. He was getting, he was supplying the Taliban while getting paid by the United States government to fly missions into Iraq. Because, you know, if you're going to try to infiltrate these places, you need to talk to the people who infiltrate these places. And Bout was a wealth of knowledge about the underworld, who to talk to, how to get things done. And you go into a country, how do you get a weapon? You know, let's say you're trying to fly a plane full of weapons in. How do you do that into these some of these war-torn, complete chaos countries? Well, you have to know who to pay, who the hierarchy is, who needs to, whose wheels need to get greased to get in there. Because if not, you know, if you can land the plane and the military can say, this is our plane now, and you are stuck there until, of course, you, you pay the bribe. And that's how the rest of the world works. Or not all of it, but that's how a, a good section of the world works. And Bout maneuvered this and navigated this um, brilliantly, and that kind of info, that kind of knowledge, that kind of you can't read about that, you can't study it anywhere. You just have to be on the ground and you have to be good at making contacts, and that's what Bout was really great at doing. So while perhaps morally reprehensible, Bout's activities remained mostly legal. NATO's embargoes were often far behind the times and lacked teeth and enforceability. With Russian backing and the fact that Bout was working with warlords and third world nations that were not interested in prosecuting a man supplying them with wealth legally, there really, was, there really wasn't much that could be done. NATO has no arrestable power. They, don't, they can't subpoena anybody. They have no actual police activity. Um, all they could do is write strongly worded letters and, and try to do some and pressure other nations to do actions such as embargoes and things like that. But NATO itself, they don't really, they're not capable of really doing anything. And after 9-11, NATO and the United States were no longer going to be complicit in Bout's transactions. Since Bout remained out of U.S. jurisdiction, the U.S. had to find another way to arrest Bout. The United States found a way in a manner even James Bond himself would be proud of. Now, this is, uh, this is actually the reading of the case. I, I found the case um, Bout versus United States. Uh, United States District Court, it, he was tried in the Southern District of New York, and this is from one of his appeals. And I will read you um, what the actual appellate uh, decision was. So he was convicted, and this is this is when he's trying to appeal, saying that the United States did not arrest him, and it tells the whole story. So the indictment charges that between November 2007 and March 2008, Bout and his co-conspirator Andrew Smulian conspired to provide FARC 
which is the, uh, I'll explain, I'll go through that in a second. With millions of dollars worth of weapons to be used to kill American nationals, officers, and employees in Colombia. The FARC, a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization, is dedicated to violent overthrow of the democratically elected government of Colombia. And, since its inception in 1964, has evolved into the world's largest supplier of cocaine. According to the indictment, the FARC has directed violent acts against United States persons and property interests in Colombia in order to protect its financial interest in the cocaine trade. Now, this is the setup. Pre-March 6, 2008, meetings and communications. This is when the United States starts setting up uh, Victor Bout. So on January 10th and 11th, 2008, Smulian and three confidential sources working with the DEA met in Curacao, Netherlands, Antilles to discuss the sale of millions of dollars worth of weapons to the FARC. Confidential sources told Smulian that they represented the FARC and needed weapons to fight against the United States and Colombia. Roughly 10 days later, Smulian met with Bout in Moscow, Russia to discuss the arms deal. The next day, during a meeting in Copenhagen, Denmark, Smulian told one of the confidential sources that Bout had instructed him to set up a meeting to discuss the deal. From January 26, 2008 through roughly February 7, 2008, Smulian had a series of meetings with the confidential sources in Bucharest, Romania, where they continued to discuss the arms deal. During the course of these meetings, Smulian informed the confidential sources that 100 IGLA surface-to-air missiles were available immediately that a delivery system was already in place for the arms, and that Bout could provide special helicopters that are superior to U.S. helicopters, and training to use the helicopters, and that Bout could provide armor-piercing rocket launchers. Now, <laughs> look, look at that list of what's available, and try to tell me that this is some guy working as a, as a smuggler. This I mean, High-level helicopters, armor-piercing rocket launchers, all of this had to be done with... Uh, with Russian backing, but I'll get back to, this is back to the, um, appellate appeal for Bout. So Bout communicated directly with Smullyan and the confidential enforced sources over the phone or via email about the arms deal throughout the February of 2006. Ultimately ind- indicated that he would meet a confidential source in Bangkok, Thailand on March 6th, 2008 to discuss the arms deal. Now this was the meeting that gets him arrested in March 6th, 2008 meeting in Bangkok. On March 6, 2008, Bout, Smullyan, and an unnamed associate of Bouts met with two of the confidential sources at a hotel in Bangkok for approximately two hours. During that meeting, Bout indicated that he understood that the confidential sources sought the arms for use against the U.S. forces in Colombia and advised that the United States was also his enemy. This is key because this is how... I'm, I'm just trans... I'm, this isn't part of the indictment, just me going, but this is key because this is where the U.S. gets its jurisdiction from. Much of the case and much of the other points was that what is the U.S. doing trying to get this guy when he's not operating anywhere near the United States? The reason that they can, out, can go out and reach to Thailand and then bring him in is the fact that it was explicitly stated, I'm guessing numerous times based on the indictment, that there was open conversation that the U.S. peace personnel was was targeted um, and that gave U.S. jurisdiction in, in, in order to arrest and try Bout. When the confidential sources advised Bout that the FARC needed anti-aircraft weapons to kill American pilots, Bout responded that he was going to repair everything the, the FARC needed. After one confidential source explained that the FARC wanted to kill American sources in Colombia, Bout indicated that the fight against the United States was also his fight and that he intended to supply FARC with arms. 
this is kind of his whole appeal is that, yeah, I mean, I'm going to say that. I'm in a room with people spending all this money to try to kill Americans. I'll say whatever. Do I actually have a fight? Have I ever actively done anything to uh, attack the United States? No. Did uh, Do I think Bell actually gave a shit? No, I don't think so at all. Um, I, you know, maybe he has, you know, animosity towards the United States, but really he just wanted to to sell this, this deal. And, you know, as a good salesman, you mirror and, and say whatever you want just to get the deal done. I'll say whatever you want to sign this deal so I can get my money. Bout then indicated that for about 15 to 20 million units of some currency, he could supply the FARC with seven to 800 surface to air missiles, 5,000 AK and 47,000 AK-47 firearms, millions of rounds of ammunition, various Russian spare parts for rifles, anti-personnel landmines and C4 explosives, night vision equipment, ultralight airplanes, which could be outfitted with grenade launchers and missiles. Those ultralights are kind of like uh, Little Nelly in uh, You Only Live Twice. We used to have them on the border. We used to fight them all the time because they would fly them over, but they're they're amazing for smuggling and, and travel. Unmanned aerial vehicles, which have a range of 200 to 300 kilometers, and two cargo planes for arms deliveries. Bell also provided people to train the FARC to use the weapons, and he said he could arrange an airdrop of the arms to the FARC in Colombia, drawing a diagram to explain the d- delivery route. Uh, so that is an amazing amount of that arms that was about to be dealt. Here are the charges what the United States actually charged him with. On the base of these allegations, the indictment charges that Bout and others, known and unknown, unlawfully, willfully, and knowingly combined, conspired, confederated, and agreed together with each other to kill nationals, officers, and employees of the United States, and that it was part of the object of the conspiracy that Bout and others agreed to, one, to provide the FARC with millions of dollars worth of weapons to be used, two, to kill those nationals, officers, and employees, three, to protect their cocaine, trafficking business, and to attack U.S. interests in, in Colombia, knowing that the FARC had engaged and was engaging in terrorist activities, and to acquire export surface-to-air missile systems to enable FARC to attack the United States aircraft in Colombia. And that's the indictment that he's charged with, and you can see that all the elements of the crime are met based on the conversation and the in furtherance of the actions that uh, Bout was about to do. It is clear from this that the main emphasis on the case was that Bout had to know and still facilitate the deal, knowing that the weapons would be used by a terrorist organization against the United States, the nexus that created and kicked in jurisdictional control over Bout. Bout was arrested during the March meeting in Thailand. Bout was convicted of violating 18 U.S.C. 2332G, which states that unlawful conduct, unlawful conduct makes it unlawful for any person to knowingly produce, construct, otherwise acquire, transfer directly or indirectly, receive, possess, import, export, or use or possess or threaten to use an anti-aircraft missile or any aircraft missile launcher. I cast a wide net of uh, things that you can do as, as the United States. And the criminal penalties under subsection C say that any person who violates or attempts or conspires to violate subsection A but will be fined not more than $2 million and shall be sentenced to a term of imprisonment not less than 25 years uh, for or imprisonment for life. And that was when the when Bout was convicted, 
the judge actually thought that it was too harsh, but he, he said that there's no choice. I have to give you 25 years based on the code. After appeal, uh, Bout's conviction was upheld. Bout remained in jail until, again, fort- fortuitously, Brittany Griner went into Russia with some hash in her bag. And after months of a negotiation, Bout was traded for Griner. Russia long advocated for Bout, maintained that the U.S. overstepped its reach by arresting and prosecuting Bout. Bout's rise to prominence demonstrates the complexity of arms trafficking. Russia had no interest in prosecuting Bout. The country where he was supplying had no desire to prosecute either. So who was left? And what, who ends up suffering? It's the people of the country ripped apart by decades of war are left to pay the biggest price while arms dealers and warlords uh, you know, fly in helicopters to go, by, go get beer. Really, really fascinating story because I think it does bring a lot of questions about, you know, did what what was Bout doing wrong? Because he was clearly backed by his government. He was clearly, you know, um, when you get into the guerrilla th- warfare, yeah, you can kind of say that it's against the government interest, but is the U.S.'s place to go and arrest them? You know, I can see both sides of the aisle, and I can see why Russia was there. But he had already done, he, he was going to be done at 25 years. So he was already in there. He only had a little bit left before he was going to be released, a couple months, or at least a year or so. So I don't, when they traded for Brittany Griner and, and gave the that, and they say, oh, we're trading this merchant to death, he, his sentence was about to be up anyways. And, um, yeah, he got, he got a little bit of parole, but... You know, it wasn't, I don't think it's as big as what the media made it out to be. Um, just because he was going to be released soon anyways. But this is what the discussion, this is why I'm bringing on all these fantastic guests in. I cannot wait to get into it. Uh, without further ado, let's bring the guest on and let's have some discussion about Victor Bout, the Merchant of Death. All right, well, welcome in. I got some amazing, amazing guests today. First, Bud West from The Bomb Brain. Second, Thomas Felix Creighton from Fleming Never Dies. And Jason Kim, everyone's favorite slutty Asian. Welcome back in, buddy. Uh, I'm so excited to have all of you guys. You know, we've got the voice of an angel, the jawline to match, and Bud West, the smoothest guy, the coolest cat uh, going around, guys. So welcome back. And first, I'll start with Bud. How, how have you been, buddy? Good to see you back. Good to be back in here. Good, yeah, good, man. I, yeah, I got my daughters are graduating college in May, so I'm like a happy guy, man. Made our last tuition payment. I got a light at an end of a tunnel. I'm actually, gonna have <laughs> money to do stuff, man. Right, Omega. I, I might show up, up on some of these bond trips. Yeah, well, congratulations, but that's a very <laughs> so right? yeah, things and are looking so- good. Jason Kim, who's out there dating all the girls who are recently graduated college. <laughs> Welcome back, Jason. How you been, buddy? Uh, doing all right. I just finished my third and final round in New York City and saw Daniel Craig for the third and final time of 2022. You know what? I got. I meant to ask you. Did he, how did he justify that Belvedere vodka commercial? Uh, he more so he just wanted to like loosen himself, and it was more so Taika Waititi and uh, how he hired a dance choreographer, or they hired a dance choreographer to come to his house and like. So he, so hold on. That was that was purposely choreographed. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> just because. Because like uh, Taiko, because he says he's not a musically gifted person, so like the choreographer would be like, "Jump now!" And then you're like, and he's like, and then you know it's all multi-cutted. And I believe the form that me, Kyle, Matt, 
attended uh will and as well as boomer said it will be on uh josh horowitz's podcast and youtube he does like mtv and comedy central but i never heard of him before this event well i'll definitely have to check that out and that was definitely one thing i wanted to question about that belvedere was purposefully done like that and the fact that it was choreographed is even more troubling but i'll move on i digress <laughs> uh welcome thomas feels great and i always have you on you're always so fantastic how have you been uh, and uh what's been up catch up look what's what's uh what's been going on buddy all is good all is good i'm calling you from what they call god's own county which is yorkshire in the north of england uh, a lovely place i'm happy to join you from here uh, I, I well, love i'm calling you i'm calling you from god's blind spot known as Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> america's armpit yeah, yeah, America's yeah, yeah. the blind spot the one he forgot about so uh i'm excited to have you guys in here man it's been a long time coming i'm excited to be back it's been about a year and a half since i've actually done these things i think my last recorded episode actually was with you bud for uh dia de la muertes which is like a year and a half ago we recorded that so yeah there were some uh what are some questions that gather all? What happened to Donnie? I'm like, Donnie's just in school, man. He'll be he'll be back, man. <laughs> you should have said he went to Columbia. But no, actually, I've been doing the exact opposite. I've been a responsible adult, and it's been terrible. So I'm ready to uh, yeah, it's uh, no fun. Yeah. do that. So I'm excited, guys. So first, today's episode, Victor, have we, de- have we decided what we're going to call it? Boot? But? I like butt. I like butt, just but. for hilarity. <laughs> 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 all right we'll, we'll go we'll go merchant of death or victor how about we'll just call him victor so we can victor, okay. victor, yeah. have a little bit of maturity here guys um uh so i'm very excited to talk about this topic because it brings a lot of layers it brings a lot of dimensions to it and i know a lot of you guys either have traveled around the world seen a lot of these places seen a lot of places where he, you know there's conflict or you guys have dealt with you know dealings and stuff so when you first heard about victor what and the story behind it what did you guys first um kind of think about Victor himself. What was your first impression of him? I'll go first. So I, I'm the so very first thing uh, before. Um, very first thing that I did was rewatch the Nicolas Cage movie called Lord of War from 2005. Awesome movie, you guys. You guys should watch it on <laughs> two, uh, HBO, by the way. And uh, I love the uh, Nicolas Cage's, and which the movie is based about around Nicholas, uh, around Victor and. The International Arms Committee apparently heavily endorsed this movie because they they said the movie did a really good job of portraying how him and other arms dealers, you know, ship weapons really rapidly across a lot of war zones. And I especially love the line up that Nicolas Cage's character says in the movie. I I provide weapons to every single army in the world except for the Salvation Army. (laughs) Right. Keep your bell. Who wants that? The bell doesn't pay. (laughs) How about you, Thomas? What about you? I mean, I know you've you've, you've been world traveled, and and what would you think about you know what kind of his thing of you know we talk about he sells to everybody and he's he mm. is profiting on the chaos and the misery of others. Uh, you know. He is, but uh, if if you intend to be a major military power, then you need to be able to supply your own military, and you need to be able to do that in peace and wartime. You can't just wait till a war and then start setting up the factories. So you tend to keep them going, and if you're keeping them going, you need the scale for economy. And if you've got that scale, they need to go somewhere. So you tend to get into the business of arms dealing if you're any kind of power. Right? The U.S. does it, the U.K. does it, Russia does it. We sell to very different people. Um, <laughs> but if we didn't sell it to them, somebody else would. Is the yeah, I mean logic. that's a great point. I mean these these you're talking about you know the actual case that he was indicted on was selling you know armor piercing missiles and helicopters that were more advanced than anything the u.s has and people to go train them 
I mean, this is not something that you could just have as a third world nation so easily. Hey, we're just going to go build this high advanced weaponry. Like you have to, you have to buy it. Mm. And uh, you know, what do you think about that? That kind of aspect, but about what it would take to actually sell these weapons, procure them um, and have, um, you know, your own set of military. I think in his case, it was probably just like the right place at the right time. And he was just like an opportunist. I mean, you know, right at the collapse of the Soviet union and, and, you know, they, they lost track of, all kinds of stuff. So he could move it in that way. They could move it out that way. Obviously he had all kinds of backers. This is not one guy doing this. And he did start small. I think he just started with the Kalashnikov rifles or something like that. But yeah, then he, then he builds up and it's like tanks, helicopters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he just kind of goes for broke, but you know, he was, it was just really right place at the right time. I mean, you know, here's a military intelligence officer. He's already got connections in Africa, speaks like six languages and stuff. And, you know, and I, and it's like, you know, some people are born for capitalism. I mean, that's not really the, the best example of capitalism, but he, <laughs> it's like he immediately recognized how to make a buck. Yeah, know? absolutely. I mean, it says that he, he started in Angola was, was where he really started out. And right. all those, those those nations i mean there's no especially that time late 80s mid 90s how did you keep track of it? it's not like you know there was a big infrastructure to where to go for this yeah i mean i'm glad you brought up angola because uh i i mean uh because i know north korea apparently because tra- soviet the soviet union or and then now russia they have a huge connection with north korea and via north korea north korea would always send a lot of uh military trainers to angola to support their arms and civil wars that and uh, there's a lot, of, and I've seen a lot of documentaries about North Korean defectors who talked about like you know, tr- like teaching various martial arts to like Angolan forces and like and providing AK-47. I mean, they would purchase their AK-47s from the Soviet Union and or now Russia, and then they would always talk about like, oh yeah, we were providing AK-47s to them, and then they never mentioned Victor Victor himself, but then they. Did, did talk about like you know the connections that and the networking and the supply chain that they built up through those through the 80s and 90s yeah why would you think north korea and angola would be um is it just because of this i mean from what i researched is that the soviet union were very heavily in angola do you think it was kind of a, a thing where the united states had south american countries that they would use to get infiltrate use as like a a median or almost like create a veil so that they could go from us to south america then to afghanistan or to you know wherever the the um prize of the day was why do you think the connection grew between you uh north korea and angola i was i was very astounded by that too because like, again it wasn't just angola like north like north korea is a very small country like country of 30 40 million people and i was so surprised how much presence their military had like all across west africa like angola libya sierra leone and the, and i and then the presence only grew after the collapse of the soviet union because like up to like because like i mean i'm not gonna go too uh you know down the rabbit hole but during this cold war north korea had the economic backing of soviet union so like they never had to work those so they were able to rely on socialism and and at many points in that 50 year 50 year period their economy was better than south korea but once the soviet union once they lost the their main backer of their economy like they were you know they were um they were dirt poor and their their country was uh, severely impoverished so they're like no we got we had to find ways to uh, you know 
fund our economy or fund our government. And that's why North Korea is like they're like they just doubled down on what they did in Africa and just like oh yeah you you uh you want someone they're like you want someone to teach us like Krav Maga or Taekwondo we'll be there and then they'll just continuously do that and just double down on all the yeah. civil, civil wars. Is that like you know Thomas? I know that you know China's kind of reaching the same thing mm. in in Africa, and and do you think that, that was kind of taking the same playbook maybe from the, the Soviet Union or something China was always doing to try to exploit the the lesser, more less developed countries of Africa for their resources? Do you think that maybe absolutely? That I mean, uh, China you know, it gets referred to as the new colonialism, right? Yeah. So it is the new rush for Africa. And in case of China today, it's largely unopposed, right? So when the Soviet Union was throwing arms into Africa, the US was doing it uh, to its uh, favoured parties there, whereas now China's going in, and there isn't a huge amount of opposition to it as as in the past. Mm, that's great. What do you think about on the same thing as far as the, you know, the kind of the chess that the chess game that's going on? Well, you know, it, it, it comes down to you know what you're really trying to extract out of it and i think in in boot's case he really only cared about money or uh, a conversation you and i had a couple of years ago conflict diamonds i mean yeah he was even willing to to trade for for those and you know so it's like it's it's just that opportunity that that comes up and then you know just as thomas said as, as soon as somebody backs off somebody else just jumps in and fills the vacuum there that's a great point. And that kind of one of, one of the points that I really wanted to get into talking about is, you know, what was actually wrong with what Victor was doing? I mean, morally reprehensible to gain um, to gain profits from the suffering others. I get that. And, you know, NATO's embargoes for the most of the part, most of the things that he was doing was not illegal. NATO was behind on the trade embargo. Right. Well, embargoes. in some cases, though, I think he was arming both sides of certain wars. Have you guys seen the new um, the FIFA un- the FIFA Uncovered documentary that came out on Netflix? I uh, I'm familiar with the story. I haven't watched the. Yeah, is, it tells is, the corruption. Is FIFA and... not entirely clean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hate to break this to you. <laughs> I don't want to spoil the ending, but it turns out they're not. It'll be Enron next. I think Seth, Seth Blatter is an excellent guy. Yeah. Right? Well, that was the interesting thing, is I spent this whole docuseries talking about how corrupt FIFA is, and at the end, they want to ask Seth Blatter, you know, do you take responsibility for the corruption? Do you feel bad about the corruption? And Seth has an interesting take. He says, no, I don't, because you may have your set of rules in your country, but this isn't how the rest of the world, I can't be responsible for how the rest of the world does their business. And to try to do something on a global scale that involves payoffs, bribes, and it's just the, 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 the paradigm of the state. That's how it works. Yeah. It's how it works. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing it in CONCACAF and Chuck Blazer, which, oh my God, what a fat piece of crap that dude is. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, these other countries, Maybe it's maybe you you may look down upon it, but it, there is a, a sort of legal realism that goes along with that. Um, anybody have thoughts on that idea of you know what did they do anything wrong? A boot question. Let that one marinate and somebody else take it, sure. right? Right. That's what a, you're talking? Uh, that's, a, uh, that's a very like uh, existential question for sure. <laughs> So for me, I think that I think that for sure, if you're not going to be the leader of the world for FIFA, in FIFA's case, if you're going to lead the world and you want to lead the world in something that you want to value, especially because it is such a, 
uh, that you can take responsibility. But in this underworld of, of weapons and arms trailing, you've got Russia, who clearly is okay with what Boots doing. Clearly okay. They clearly have backing, and we'll get into that a little oh, later. Yeah, they're obviously making money off it too. Yeah, yeah everybody's making, and the the other countries are they're dealing with the the leaders of that other third world country and they have no other way to get to arm themselves or to arm their place um because you know manufacturing you're not going to build plants like we said before you're not going to build this so you have to buy it from other countries and where's the line of when you accept someone who doesn't have anything to do with what the weapons are coming in and telling you two sovereign nations what they're supposed to do yeah, well, there's always you always wonder about the legality of it when it's done under the radar. Yeah, you know, I mean, like if, legality if you've got a nation that's about? coming out and saying, "Hey, yeah, we're supplying these guys, we're sending these guys money and stuff, we're picking a side." Yeah, but you know, it's that arming both sides that I think it's morally reprehensible. You know, and yeah. that's a that's what ends up really, I think, in the end, getting him, you know, the Interpol warrant. And that's an interesting thing. It's not that you are picking a side or, or arming somebody. You're escalating the death capabilities of people. Is, right. is that where you? Is that where you kind of find it reprehensible? Is that you're taking? Yeah, it should be a fist yeah. fight and turning it into a gunfight. And, and you're just making money off the carnage at that yeah. point. But but you're not really arming rebels to overthrow a corrupt government, but corrupt in your view. Yeah, yeah. or you're not corrupt in your view whatever you're not arming a nation to put down a, re, a corrupt rebellion you know but you know then he's into well then he ticks off the wrong people then he's arming the taliban and then yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. it's also pick your pick pick your enemies i mean you know who are you gonna who are you gonna arm there i mean you know if i'm mormon if i'm mormon uh, jason here to go get thomas right <laughs> yeah. 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 I zoned out for a second and what? Sorry, right. I know UK I'm, guys I'm, don't have guns, but we all got it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How about you guys? What, what do you think, Thomas, on that front? You know, as far as you know, not just legality but morality kind of deal about what what transpired. I mean, it's desperately sad. So we look at some of these African countries that he's putting arms into. In the case of Sierra Leone, its life expectancy went down below what it was in the colonial era. That yeah. is desperately sad and of course what we're looking at say, in the colonial era is we respect each other's spheres of influence we develop our own because we want to trade with these countries yeah. then you get into kind of ideological struggle during the cold war of the us backing one side russia backing the other and it becoming a conflict zone and then after that kind of becoming a free-for-all and he is benefiting from that free-for-all and so yeah. it's that kind of that chaotic vacuum that he's benefiting from um so it is desperately sad if you want the Turkish proverb, it's that when elephants collide, it's the grass that gets trampled. Yeah. And here, I think people feel so sympathetic towards the grass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a common way to think about it, but it is. It's, it's almost like, you know, it's, you know, to, to have a more everyday, more relatable. It's like being a drug dealer and you have this guy who clearly is spiraling down and instead of seeking help, you see a chance to, you know, make, make some money just feeding further into the, you know, despair. Exactly. How about you, Jason? Uh, I'd say I'm, I'm just going to build off of what everyone's been saying. It's like, I think not so much the economic factor, but it was the fact that he was arming both sides and just like trying to like rack up and profiting off of other suffering is what eventually like brought down his downfall. And uh, I got to tell you, Jason, I was kind of hoping you were going to say $20 is $20, my guy. So. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, more so like, I know, like, I remember I read the papers about like how he, did arm 
the Lebanese army, the Lebanese army between in the 2006 civil war, as well as uh, he armed the Hezbollah to shoot down yes. the Israeli airline in right. Kenya. And then I was like, yeah, I mean, that would, and I was like, yeah, if you kind of tick off the Mossad and the idea of the Israeli defensive force, you're going to create a huge long list of enemies in that. And I know like late, I, I don't know. I mean, someone backed me up or correct me, but I have heard that he did provide some sort of supply chain for the U.S. government during the Iraq war in the 2000s. But then yeah. eventually. Yeah, he made event- he made 50, 60 million dollars transporting U.S. equipment before they realized that they were using a shell company that he, <laughs> that he was running. Yeah. So he, he out of our Pentagon, he got about 50, 60 million before they realized what was going on. You actually make a good point with with the Hezbollah and you know, who are the, who are the weapons going to be used against? Yeah. It's one thing to have an army fighting another army. It's another thing to have uh, an army just attacking civilians. How much did the U.S. Defense Department pay him? $50 million. Something along those lines. Yeah, it was something crazy. Well, you know, who else are you going to pick, though? You'd have to, you're, you're starting this war. And who better than to outsource, you know, confidential informers to people who know actually how to fly into Iraq? How do you fly into Iraq? You know, it's like all these places, all these runways, all the, the intricacies. There's I've heard this debate or, or people kind of say like, oh, you know, we're letting the merchant of death by and he's going to go back and he start his own criminal enterprise. And I'm thinking this was not his own criminal enterprise. No. Uh, what, what do you guys think? And some of you guys have, you know, experience in this. What would it take to actually become a merchant of death? Give me the blueprint, guys. Tell me, I mean, tell me secrets. I mean, so Bud West said, uh, Bud said very early on that uh, he took he was an opportunist who took who came at the right time and at the time of the, of the Soviet Union collapse, like you know, the Soviet military was just ber- not ber- the opposite of bread. They had over and non- over uh, over saturation of just unused military equipment just left and right and he was able to just get 60 Antonov planes all to himself and because they're not going to be because you know like now they're all individual countries like they don't need not everybody needs like a huge massive fleet so he just took a he bought all 60 Antonov planes for a very cheap price and then just began to smoke and then obviously well, I get that in the beginning but by the time you you know he, this was he didn't get taken down to 2008 and t- he got taken down in Thailand mm-hmm. And yeah. he was supplying to the FARC in Colombia, mm-hmm. uh, Colombian warlords, it was a DEA operation. So mm-hmm. maybe in the 90s, you could say, oh, it was chaos and then it was all this. But how do you explain him all the way getting $50 million and a brokering a deal from the United States government and then operating all the way up until 2008 without having some kind of uh, government? Like, apparently in, in Russia, it's called a Krisha. And oh. a Krisha translates into a roof. Yeah. I mean, like I, I mean, like any military opera. I mean, because like I'm, I work a lot with military sustainment and supply. You know, making sure that the U, U.S. military is mission ready every single day, and that's that's the point of us. And I think what Vic, Victor did really well was like because he had a huge, he developed a huge network of supply supply line, not just from the get. Um, from the get-go he so he built from bottom up and he was able to like you know forge papers and you know he knew the system really well to you know um you know continue his operation for the 20 30 years that he did or 20 years i guess all right so bud west i'm gonna i want to be an art merchant of death tomorrow tell me how i become the merchant of death oh, you're on you're, mute you're, bud. you're mute bud 
There we go. So the funny thing was I, I was involved in the Army's rewrite of the U.S. Army's of their logistics system, you know, decades ago. And uh, that was done in response to our own military losing track of stuff during the first Gulf War. So the first time we went into Iraq, you know, they want tanks in Iraq and they're accidentally, you know, sending these things to the wrong spots and stuff. So, I mean, it, it's, it's not surprising to me that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that they basically just lost track of this stuff. Yeah. But somewhere, somebody knew where this was, where that was. And this guy had all kinds of contacts within the Kremlin, not just Putin or, or any of those guys. You know, he had multiple contacts. You know, he was military intelligence. He was familiar and had contacts in these African nations. He spoke multiple languages. It, it's almost like the perfect storm. But yeah, nobody sets up a, an enterprise like that. I mean, they, you know, right off the bat, he's got like 300 employees. Yeah. was what I read. So he's got plenty of people working for him. Um, and, and, you know, and then you start to make a name for yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like it, he began dealing apparently with the Taliban when they captured one of his planes. Yep. They kidnap his crew and then they kind of force him to the table as if he needed to be forced. <laughs> and... <laughs> oh, yeah, go on, it's, man. It's, I'll show yeah. you. Oh, yeah. I guess I'll you more. Right. That's a good parallel. You, you know, you bring up a good point about what if you are an arms dealer and you were in Afghanistan last year and the United States left billions of dollars of munitions, tanks, just there. planes, just sitting there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, sure. how much, how much uh, be almost a parallel to the same thing, right? Yeah. What are you going to do? And if you don't know how to use it, you might as well sell it, mm. you get rid of it. But they, I mean, he had a hell of a network. I mean, you know, you don't just kind of hand this stuff out, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I can't remember which one of you guys said this before. You got to train people to use it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, he had all the connections and it, it's just, you know, none of this happens if the Soviet Union stays together. Because he's just a he's just a military intelligence officer, but it's when it all falls apart and people start losing track of stuff and like, you know, oh crap! Didn't we have twenty tanks over there? Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, Chaos Vladimir so and so, right? right? Yeah, yeah. They they how, just how about you, Thomas? Well, I mean, how how do I become the Merchant of Death tomorrow? I, these guys seem to be like, oh, I, I need connections or whatever. I want to hear the I Thomas know, idea. I don't know. I, I'd go slightly out of the box. I know somebody who set up a bar, right? And that was very, very difficult in the first year. He had to work, you know, seven day weeks, he was working every hour that he was awake. It was very, very difficult to make, you know, to break even. Yeah. But once he did it, it was running. Was and then he started getting profits. And then he started setting up another bar and another bar. And pretty quickly, he started having a million pounds a year in terms of income. Yeah. The first year was hell. But after that, he started to make it. So I think uh, looking at Victor Bout or Butt, <laughs> we, we are looking at on a grand scale of, first of all, once you make it, you make it. And second of all, on a grand scale, I know a guy. <laughs> I you know need a guy. something done, <laughs> you know, I that know is, this guy. That's it. I mean, that's that's probably what he made himself yeah. useful was. It's not just he knows a guy in Russia. He has, I know a guy in Angola or I know mm -hmm. a warlord. And there were some pretty cool stories about him being in the African bush with a warlord mm. and flying a helicopter to go get beer for, for yeah. warlords. Like, you know, and that's just how you curate these things. And you know, I guess and he's he kind of a few languages, guy. right? Speaking a few languages tends to go with people skills. Yeah. Not he's from always. Tajikistan. I, I, you know, I always thought he was Russian, but he's not, he's not even mm. Russian. He's from Tajikistan. No, 
Yeah. 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 And Tajik language is kind of related to Turkish. It's kind of an interest of mine. So you do get two completely different language families already in his head. Um, yeah. You know, if he speaks Russian, speaks Tajik, I assume. Um, and then you look at the list of languages that he speaks. I think six is generally agreed upon at good conversational level. They're quite diverse uh, and in very useful countries for arms dealing. Yeah. And the, right. in the city he was born, it was you could take like a, a, a radius. You would just take a compass and just kind of spin it. You hit mm. like six countries all in the same radius. So, it, it, you know, yeah. that is a proximity, his, his ability of that all all beneficial. And I think we'll, we'll stop with the last topic here will be um, just actually the takedown of him. So he gets the whole idea was that he uses I'm going to assume based on the way the, the operation went down is that the DEA is has. Um, Colombian FARC terrorist organizations, they're going to put them away for life. Um, and they get them to flip the CIs basically saying, hey, I know a guy who who can get us missiles. Would would that keep me out of jail? And the DEA is like, maybe, let's talk. And then so they end up setting this long set of um, the sting operation based in Curacao, and then they end up in, in Thailand. And the whole premise is that they're in, the, during the conversations, the the CIs are saying multiple times it's going to be used to kill Americans. And Victor Boot is like, yeah, you know, do your thing, bro. And then that was enough to bring U.S. jurisdiction because now you're targeting U.S. citizens. Mm. So therefore, now we have the long arm law that you can reach and bring you back and he gets taken down in that. But what, what do you think about the ability of just saying in a room, hey, you know, whatever, whatever you want to use these for. I don't, you know, even if Victor's like, hey, I'm in a room with people who are trying to kill other people. What, what was I supposed to say? I'm not going to say, mm. hey, man, you should use these missiles for a really good cause. <laughs> you know, like, you know, uh, what do you think about the U.S. trying to go into Thailand and then yank, you know, a citizen out for for that? Well, I think they kind of lure him to Thailand, right? Originally, they tried to lure him into what, like Romania? But because of the Interpol warrant, he couldn't. Well, yeah, the, the whole point with the, 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 he used the, the Smulkin or was the associate's name. And a lot of the initial meetings were done in either Curacao or something else. Right. Like that. And then in Thailand, it's a great place because Thailand, a lot of terrorists get caught up in Thailand because the Thailand police, the local authorities work very well with United States authorities. So a lot of times when they have these international either terrorists or things like that, they end up there because it's not Americans that take them down, it's the Thailand police. Yeah, and I think in this case, yeah, it was. It was DEA agents from from our side working with the Thailand police. Although it takes them two years to extradite him, yeah, because of something going on in the background, and I never could find any real information on what was actually happening behind the scenes there. Yeah, I mean, it's license to kill, guys, with Colonel Heller. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do you think about Thomas? So if you, if, you know, we, you, we've got three Americans on the panel and we've got our one representation for, um, from UK. Uh, how do you feel about, you know, the US kind of spending, viewing themselves as the world's policemen in this matter? You, we talked about FIFA mm. earlier. The US is the one that takes down FIFA. The one is the one that takes down the US or the Olympic Committee, they, the Russian doping scandal. All of these things become pre- projects almost of, of these big uh, three-letter federal agencies. Mm. And the US seems very keen to kind of expand its 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 territory or what yeah. it can govern. I think all American citizens who live abroad are very familiar with uh, the IRS double taxing people. <laughs> Americans who live abroad have to pay double taxes, which our government won't. Um, 
And equally, there have been cases, for example, of Americans committing crimes outside the United States and the United States basically springing them out mm-hmm. um, using it. So the US is pursuing its own rational self-interest. I can only assume that Victor Bout or Butt was pursuing Russia's rational self-interest. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, he benefited enormously from his business of helping Russia's you have rational self-interest. He was presumably picked up by the U.S. according to what the U.S.'s interests were. And finally, he gets freed because of Russia and America's interests aligning. So it's the, it's the weather. It's the, it's the sea on which he sails. Right. It's the dirty business of realism, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys think? He also think? You know, keeps his trap shut the whole time. You know, the whole time he's, he's yeah. uh, in Thailand, the two years, he never says a word. He, he doesn't take the witness stand during the trial. Mm. He doesn't call witnesses in his own defense. I mean, he's actually yeah. never given a single shred of intelligence about the, you know, the true sources of any of this stuff. Yeah. When you can speak six languages and you choose not to say anything. <laughs> that That's a, a good skill. point, man. <laughs> That's a lot of restraint. Yeah, right. I heard he also learned further languages while he was in prison. Like he learned like Farsi, Zulu, and Esperanto is what I, I don't even know where they speak it, but that's that was something I just had in my notes. Wow. Yeah, Esperanto was uh, one of his lessons as he learned as a kid. So he got on board that big fashion and it's a really good gateway language. Although it is artificial, there's not many speakers around the world now. Um, uh, so, okay. But yeah, he speaks they don't speak that in Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll find maybe I could find a church that does, but I don't know. <laughs> Who knows what 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 the youpers up there speak? But uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, guys, this has been great. And uh, you know, does anybody else have anything else to add before we, we kind of wrap it up? I know you got, I've been taking up 45 minutes of your time, and I appreciate every single second of this. It's always a blast. But does anybody have any final words they want to get out on this? No, so it's definitely Mike. an interesting topic, and it comes up quite a bit, obviously, in the Bond films. I mean, yeah. oh yeah, and, that, and I right. think that's why favorite Bond, favorite Bond Mike. weapons dealer. Oh my god! <laughs> I'll go first. I'll go first. I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Uh, and I said this a lot. It definitely a uh, Valentin Sukowski, and uh, if you got, and I bring him up because uh, in Gold, I mean, Golden is probably all four of our f- favorite films are up there, and in the Golden Knight deleted scene when now. Val- valentine's dealing with the iranian arms dealer who sells him a glock that with the short pin that doesn't fire he's like you sold me a big chinese get out of my sight and i was like <laughs> and when i watched that scene which should have been in the movie i mean which should have been in the movie um that really reminds me of my dealings with many defense contractors on a day-to-day basis because like i'm the customer and i'm and a lot of times a lot of co- contractors sell me like shitty or terrible parts for our vehicles i was like get out and my, my mom's like bound to get out of my sight <laughs> that's pretty awesome man how about you how about you bud favorite favorite bond weapons dealer oh i love the Zukowski character I, yeah he, he's awesome yeah. yeah helicopters i got six you got four and then none of them fly or something like yeah it's like he's just like cocky. who's counting you know? right <laughs> And Thomas, let's end with your favorite favorite uh, Bond weapons dealer. I, I'll go for one different. Lazar from The Man of the Golden Gun, because I was wondering if Victor Bout is supplying so much. Can he supply golden bullets? Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 look at that. <laughs> right? Anyone can supply a tank, but can you do a golden right. bullet that fires? That's exactly Skill, right. skill. That's what I want. <laughs> well, guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you guys so much for coming on and taking the time to do this. This has been such a treat as always. Thomas, Bud, Jason, until next time, this has been Quantum of History. This has been 
Victor Boot, Bout, however we want to talk about it. Um, and thank you guys for tuning in. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. Awesome. Thank you. Thank Take you. Take it easy. Good night, boys.